0: When it was all finished, I knew that we wouldn't be able to hold the fact that we'd reached this interim agreement. It would leak. We all decided that the best thing was to actually announce it. I remember going to the UN building and being very nervous that by the time I got there, it would all have collapsed. We had to make sure that nobody said, yes, but. It had to be, we have reached this.
1: From the Oslo Forum, welcome to the Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. With me today, Baroness Catherine Ashton, former EU High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, from 2009 to 2014. As the EU's first foreign policy chief, she brokered a landmark agreement between Serbia and Kosovo, played a pivotal role in the signing of a nuclear deal with Iran, and was the first diplomat to meet with Egypt's deposed President Morsi following his removal from power in 2013. Kathy Ashton, welcome to the Mediator Studio.
0: Hello, Adam. Nice to be here.
1: I'd like to start with your mediation work between Serbia and Kosovo. Uh, it was October 2012 when you brought together the prime ministers of Serbia and Kosovo, Ivica Dacic and Hashim Thaci. One, a former spokesman of President Milosevic of Yugoslavia. The other, a former leader of the Kosovo Liberation Army, and both bitter enemies. Talks have been going on at the level of senior officials for, for several years, but it was felt that it had to be dealt with at the at the very highest levels now. Give us a sense of what the stakes were for these talks and the challenge of launching a process with these two prime ministers.
0: For them, coming together, for Ivica Sadatric and Hasim Thaci to come together was extremely difficult. They'd never met. They were enemies. For both Serbia and for Kosovo, the idea that they would meet was for many people extremely difficult. For many people in Kosovo, this was meeting the enemy who had done such terrible things over such a long period of time. And for Serbia, well, why would you meet these people? Kosovo is Serbia, was the slogan. So it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. And I have to admit that I was surprised that they actually did it on that day.
1: Tell us a little bit about that day, because, you know, given those political risks for leaders on both sides, you know, how did you make them feel comfortable and persuade them that you could create a a safe space almost for them?
0: It's a good word, Adam, safe space, because when I'd set it up, I'd made clear that we were going to do this in a way that they could both feel comfortable. They arrived uh, and I saw them both separately for a bilateral conversation. Something that I've always believed is really important because it helps you to sort of warm up the conversation. And for when they see you in a formal way, when you have the formal meeting, it's not the first time they've seen you that day. It also helps you to understand not just their mood, but what's going on at home, because that's always important. I saw them both separately. And told them exactly what would happen. It would be one hour. I would speak first, I would invite Vizadachi to speak second, and Hassim Dachi to speak third. They didn't have to shake hands. There would be one photograph. The photographer would take the picture, and in those days we have memory sticks, would remove the memory stick and hand it to me, and the picture would go nowhere unless they both agreed. And at the end of one hour I would stop the conversation. So they knew exactly what. Uh, the process would be, and then I went through the agenda too. So when they came in together, they knew what they were coming into. There was no need to fear that they would be asked to do something they couldn't do or expected to have a relationship with each other they couldn't have. It was all very open and very easy as far as it possibly could be for them. What
1: it speaks to is really the incredible thought that you put into in a, a, both the substance of the talks, but also the, the kind of stage management of, of needing to speak to them beforehand to understand what constraints they might face and to really kind of walk them through exactly what will happen to, in a way, put their, their kind of nervousness at, at ease.
0: I think it's really important and good mediators, of whom there are many, automatically think about how do you get the best out of this conversation this meeting how do you make people feel as comfortable as possible because if they don't then they won't be willing to engage in conversation and they certainly won't be willing to try out new ideas or to fly kites as we might say to be willing to sort of test out ideas and propositions Um, It is absolutely crucial that everything that happens around a difficult conversation is as easy as possible for the people who you're expecting so much of.
1: Clearly, you did put them at ease because, you know, that that photo that you refer to, which, you know, you you assured them it wouldn't be released without their consent. They did, as I understand it, eventually agree that it would be all right. And and I, I suppose that hints at the fact that they felt like this was a risk, but a risk that they were willing to take
0: well in fact the uh, i think it was uh, hasim's actually agreed on the day that it could go out and it was the next day that we heard from belgrade that they were comfortable for it to be released so it didn't take very long but understandably i wanted them to be confident that should the conversation go badly should it be obvious to them that there was nothing to talk about that they didn't have to worry that it would be captured in some way the world's media.
1: Let's talk a bit about the actual process of talks once you got past that initial phase and, and, and broke at that first meeting. Obviously, these are going to be inevitably contentious negotiations. You resisted the temptation to do any drafting of agreements during the talks and, and rarely did press conferences after sort of each round of, of negotiations. Can you tell us a bit more about why you made those choices?
0: Well the press conference was was easy what i wanted to make sure of was that whatever i said they both agreed to you know i didn't want to provide an opportunity i'm not saying they would have done this but you don't provide the opportunity for them both to say she got that wrong or that's not what we agreed or whatever so at the end of each round i would make a very short statement to camera done through my own office and then we would release that to all the media that wanted it. And every word I said, every comma was agreed by both sides before I said it. We would sit down and we would write it together. So they could be comfortable in what I said, but I could also be confident that they weren't going to go out and contradict it. On the writing down, the most important thing about this discussion with the two of them was that this was going to be their agreement, not mine you know, it's it's really important that if you're mediating, you don't end up being the person who actually comes up with the ideas and is seen to be the person who's actually in control of what happens. And by that, I mean that I didn't have to go out and sell it. I didn't have to go out and explain to people who might be concerned that it didn't fulfill what they wanted. I didn't have to persuade people on their sides. My job was to do with persuading the 28 member states of the EU that they had done enough to move forward with the relationship with Europe. So the agreement was theirs. We gave them issues they had to work through. We had an agenda that met the criteria that the EU member states needed them to have dealt with. But what they decided to do was absolutely down to them.
1: How did you feel that when it came to the kind of substantive side of the negotiations, just give us a sense of what that was like, you know, for a listener who might not know the, the intricacies of the relationship between Serbia and Kosovo, like how did they work through these very thorny issues around sort of recognising each other and, and normalisation as it was framed?
0: What we'd done was we'd such out very clearly that we were not asking for the recognition issue to be on the table at this point we were very clear about what was not being discussed as well as what was being discussed. This was about making the lives of people who lived in the north of Kosovo better. And so it focused on pretty practical things that would make a difference. Crossing the border should be easy. Allowing for what would happen to money collected at customs point. Having one single police force that was a Kosovo police force rather than having either people paid by more than one or divided loyalties or even different systems, different people. We thought about number plates for cars. It was very, very practical things. And it began with a discussion about having a representation in each other's capital. Not an embassy, obviously, because Serbia did not recognise Kosovo, but having some kind of ability to be able to raise problems and issues with someone who was actually on the spot. And that was our very first conversation because it it meant they were equally having to think about how to do that, equally having to think about how it would work in practice. And it was a great sort of opening conversation.
1: You know, it's not an easy task, uh, the one you had in that mediation process, because the way you describe the issues at stake, they're deeply practical. They're also technical, issues as well and you're dealing with this at the highest level of kind of political leadership so talk to us a little bit about that dynamic and how in a way you try to create a tone almost of engagement between the the two prime ministers which I assume would also help work through the technical side of these talks.
0: It was really important that they in the room with me felt as comfortable as possible that they felt they were in an atmosphere of respect and trust, that they were not being asked to do things that were impractical or that were not even handed in the sense that there were things each had to do. And we set a tone of trying to resolve a problem, not trying to raise the political stakes, because part of this was about their ability to be able to build some form of relationship between them. And so those conversations often gave way to broader conversations with each other, sometimes conversations that they would have in the corridor, but allowed them to try and find common solutions that did not breach their red lines, maybe bumped up against them, and that allowed them to think about the future in a different way.
1: I imagine there must have been a significant evolution in the personal dynamics, you know, between the two leaders, between them and yourself. Talk to us a little bit about how you saw that change over the course of the talks.
0: It was extraordinary, actually, because when they first met, they were both extremely nervous. And they talk about this. They were both, as I described it, sweating. They were doing something that was really, really extraordinary and extremely brave to do. And within a relatively short time, not least because some of these sessions you describe were 10, 12, 14 hours long. We'd be there together all day. We did break for food and all that, but they were long sessions. They were working through problems together and like anybody in those circumstances, began to talk about other things, but also began to build a sort of rapport. And it was most noticeable to me when quite early on, We'd had a dinner discussion, something that I did quite often with them because it meant that they could, in a more relaxed way, talk about questions that we were putting to them. Just again, the six of us, myself, Fernando Gentilini, the senior Italian official who'd worked with me, who was amazing. And then the two of them with the person who did the translation for them. And we were very late at night, one, two in the morning, having to Finalise a particular problem. And the two officials who had been elsewhere in the building with their teams beavering away on this problem had reached the point where they needed to get political buy in. So we invited them to come up and to, if you like, present to the two prime ministers. And they walked into the room and saw the two of them sitting there opposite each other with the debris of the end of dinner coffee cups, napkins on the table. And their eyes were on stalks because they were obviously in relaxed conversation with each other. And I can absolutely remember that moment of thinking two things at the same time. One is, goodness me, how far we've come in a short period of time. And secondly, and as importantly, you know, we need to make sure we take everybody else with us because this is not just about how individuals get on, important though that is, if underneath them, they're not actually carrying with them people who see that this is about progressing on some very practical, important issues.
1: As you said, this was a process which was requiring them to do things that were politically difficult. And, you know, any negotiator is always looking back home and wondering, you know, what criticism they're going to receive for, for making concessions to the other side. Was there a moment at which you felt that, you know, a threshold had been crossed and you know these people were willing to take that risk they were willing to endure kind of people back home who might have said they'd given away too much.
0: Inevitably they both were heavily criticised for what they were doing for the fact of the meeting at all was the subject of heavy criticism and it's always the case that it's easier to, to do nothing to you know be a leader who doesn't actually take risks or rise to the challenge. They were extraordinary in being willing to do that. And it seemed to me from quite early on, even from the first meeting, I think, that they were certainly ready to try. Nobody knew, least of all me, if we would succeed. And indeed, right up until the last meeting, And even then, I was not at all convinced that we could get an agreement. And that was not for want of trying. That was because it was just incredibly difficult for them to do. But what I saw on that first occasion were two prime ministers who I thought were willing to give it a try.
1: And did you allow yourself a moment of quiet satisfaction when the agreement had actually been reached, having invested so much of your own time in it and having... You know when you first started, many people were skeptical that that it was possible. I mean, even you yourself said just now you weren't really sure even uh, just just before the agreement was signed that 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 would be finally done. So how did you feel?
0: I think I was that the way that the final signing was done was that they never actually met on the day that they signed until after they'd signed. It was quite challenging to make sure that we'd got everybody into the right place, that what I'd written down was right. There were last minute hiccups about language, all sorts of things. And I can remember that when I'd got Hasim Tachi's agreement to it, I literally opened the nearest meeting room, found a little flag, those little flags with a, a wooden base that you put on a desktop brought him in, found a photographer, and he and I signed it with a photograph. And then I went off to the room where the Serbian delegation was and got them to sign it. Afterwards, it was a sense of relief and release that we'd done it. I think a sort of... a slight disbelief, actually. I I find it a bit hard to think, well, we've got this far. As importantly, though... I was very conscious that we had a long way to go because we had to implement it, which is, of course, uh, the hard part.
1: I'd like to move from Serbia and Kosovo to Iran, you know, where there had been international talks involving different parties about Iran's nuclear programme from as far back as 2003. But you know, there came a point during your time as EU High Representative when the dialogue picked up momentum, particularly when President Rouhani in Iran was elected, When did you begin to feel that this was now a real negotiation?
0: Immediately after President Rouhani was elected, I wrote to him about the Iran nuclear talks. And we were notified that the foreign ministry would be leading on it, that this would fall under the the wing, as it were, of Foreign Minister Zarif. And um, he and I spoke. It was very obvious to me that they were interested in serious discussions and in moving this forward. So it was very quickly very different in in atmosphere, in style, in interest in, in the discussions.
1: And so maybe if you can to, to to share some of those first interactions, which in a way signalled in you know both style terms, as you said, but also in substance that there was now really the basis for for, for negotiations to begin in earnest?
0: We met together at the United Nations, at the General Assembly, where the ministers of the P5 plus 1, E3 plus 3 met.
1: These are the five permanent members of the Security Council plus Germany.
0: Yeah, the task of doing the negotiations fell to what's called the P5, the permanent five members, as you rightly say, which is Russia, China, US, France and Britain together with Germany, P5 plus one, because the original negotiations way back in 2002-3 had been led by the three foreign ministers of Britain, Germany and France, and then added onto that had been the rest of the P5, if you like, later on. So we brought everybody together and it was an opportunity for the six foreign ministers to be able to talk with the foreign minister of Iran and for him to respond to that. And it was quickly clear that although there was a long way to go and lots of issues and problems to to be resolved, that there was a willingness and a real interest to do it. And that gave us uh, an opportunity to move forward quite quickly. So we met in the September and the interim agreement was done in late November. So a very short period, bearing in mind I had by then already been working on negotiations with Iran for over two years.
1: So obviously it was a file that you, you knew well and you've had personal relationships with uh, the, your counterparts in, in the other world powers who were negotiating with Iran. How did you manage to keep that group unified at a time when you know, it was a difficult geopolitical environment?
0: You know, one of the most important parts of uh, negotiation that is involving more than one party is the energy and effort that you put into keeping your own side in the same place. There were a number of things that were very important. First of all, understanding where each of the six countries came from on the issues that were presenting themselves on Iran's nuclear programme. So that meant both thinking strategically, where did they fit in their political relationships with Iran and with each other. And those relationships changed. Remember, the Ukraine crisis with Russia happened while the talks were still continuing with Iran. I would be flying from the talks in Vienna with the Iranians, where Russia was our partner, to Kiev to be talking to, originally President Yanukovych, then later President Poroshenko, and dealing with all of the issues around the Maidan concerns, which were linked to the failure to sign an agreement with the European Union. So there were lots of moments when these relationships had to be managed quite carefully. Um, Strategically understanding each other, strategically knowing relations with the region, and then the detail. Where did each of them feel they had to be on each of the technical topics that we needed to talk about. Let me put it this way. If you're doing an agreement as complicated as the Iranian nuclear program agreement, the task that we had been given was to ensure confidence in the purely peaceful nature of Iran's nuclear program. And the translation of that I always said was like a jigsaw puzzle. When you put the puzzle together all the bits have to fit. There can be no bits of daylight between any piece. The picture that is created must be absolutely clear. You know what it is. But how the pieces are made up can vary. Big pieces, little pieces, odd shaped pieces and so on. And so the question we always had to look at with the six countries was what size pieces, which shape pieces, how do these pieces fit together, and to make sure that we had a common position. Because not only was it important for the Iranians to know that we were not going to mess around with different positions from different people, that there had to be eventually a common position of where the agreement should lie. But also that there was no chance that one of the six or two of the six would say, well, we've got enough, we're leaving now, thank you. You know, it had to be that all of them would stand together, even if one was asking for more in one area, one was needing more in another. Or where one might need a lot more than the others needed overall. In other words, it had to be that we all signed up to a joint position and stuck with it. In
1: today's world, it seems almost unimaginable that you're able to kind of bring together a, a set of world powers with as diverse interests as that, but but you did. And you know, once you had ensured that that group was unified and you were in the course of negotiating with Iran, how much of your understanding with them was forged, you know, in the negotiating room. And bearing in mind this, of course, is, 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 you know, they're deeply technical issues at stake as well. And how much was that informal interaction that you spoke of, also in the, in the case of Serbia and Kosovo, kind of critical to the success of the talks?
0: You had a great deal of effort going into understanding what was doable and feasible, understanding the politics that were going on, because negotiations do not happen in a vacuum. And what's happening at home or in a region or elsewhere can have a big impact on your capacity to be able to move things forward. We were also, of course, for great periods of time, locked away together in Geneva and then later in Vienna, where we met in Vienna for about a week, a month, for over a year. And in that time, and sometimes for significantly longer periods, if we're in the middle of trying to work through particular problems, we would hardly go out, hardly leave the facilities. They were very nice facilities, I have to hasten to add. But that meant that you would have conversations about life. You would get to know people in a slightly different way. And it's important to see that in the the context of if you're going to be working on very difficult questions, you have to develop, in my view, a sense of what is possible and not possible, and a sense of understanding that when you say to someone, that's not we can't do that, that doesn't work, that it although you're not playing all your cards, you are not going to give away all your negotiating positions, that people understand that you're actually trying to give them the reality of the situation. And that's the most important thing about both sets of talks was that throughout, though I didn't know whether we would succeed or not, there was a genuine desire to try and find answers, that there was a genuine wish to see if we could make this work, an understanding that we might fail, but an absolute conviction that it was worth trying.
1: In the final stage of the talks in Geneva, when you were negotiating through the night and finally reached a deal at three o'clock in the morning, you know, the success of what you had achieved together with others in the process, did it take time for that to sink in?
0: I remember when it was all finished. And it was, as you rightly say, the middle of the night, it was about three o'clock, 3.30. I knew that we, we wouldn't be able to hold the fact that we'd reached this interim agreement It would leak, of course. And I also was worried that somehow we would find a problem, you know, that the problem would get created somewhere that would would hold it back. And we all decided that the best thing was to actually announce it. And I remember going to the UN building from the hotel where we were staying so that we could announce it formally because, of course, it was in the context of the UN. That we were doing the negotiations and being very nervous that by the time I got there, it would all have collapsed. And it was obvious, of course, to all the waiting media that something was going on because suddenly we're all moving around in the middle of the night. When we got ready to announce, I was conscious too that we had to make sure that everybody was there, everybody was lined up, so we had all the ministers together, and that the way that we did it and the words that we said would be agreeable and acceptable. So nobody said, yes, but. It had to be, we have reached this. And after we'd done it, I remember thinking, goodness me, we've done it. I travelled back to London with John Kerry, Secretary Kerry, who was coming into uh, London for meetings in any event. And I remember we were just very, very tired on the plane. Of course, the plane had lots of press on it as well. And thinking that this was such an important moment. It was nice to just sit back and think about it. But, you know, and I'm sure this is true for many other people who've been involved in negotiations. What really brings it home is the reaction of other people when they see you, that other people who've been outside of it see it as much more a kind of a moment than perhaps you do when you're sitting in the middle of it, because you're, it's part of a long process so when we went over to talk to people after we'd reached the agreement with Serbia and Kosovo, when we went out and away from Geneva with the interim agreement, it's when you meet other people that you you realise that, well, maybe perhaps that was a bit of something.
1: Looking ahead, Kathy, we have a Biden White House in a few weeks' time. The US under Trump pulled out of the agreement. And understandably, there's a deep sense from Iran that the faith they put into into this agreement has been betrayed. How would you go about restoring that trust?
0: I think there are a number of things that need to happen. President-elect Biden has said that he wants to, I'm not sure of his exact words, but he certainly wants to go back towards an agreement, back into the agreement. I'm not entirely sure what his um, exact words and obviously don't know what his exact thinking is. But the sort of things that you'll have to consider will be that although I've never underestimated for one moment the absolute vital importance of what the Americans did and the significance of the work that they did, they were amazing. It was a team effort, and it belongs to the P5 plus 1, the E3 plus 3, and the EU. It is an agreement that carries weight, in part, because it does have within it the permanent members of the Security Council, who, after all, could be told things if they wanted, who've worked together. And I think that's really significant. And so I hope that he would reach out to all of them and take their advice and their views, because some of them have spent a lot of time still being in touch with Iran and may have a a greater sense of things there. The second thing I think he has to think about is that from the Iranian perspective, this was a deal that had a longevity to it, as it did for the other countries involved, and that for the Iranians, the big thing they got out of this, arguably, was a better economy. And that relied on investment and business and trade and all of the things that we understand make an economy grow. And that relies on the confidence of business to feel that they can do business, that they can invest, that they can build factories, they can do whatever. That goes back to the problem of an agreement which relies on presidential sign-off that What looked like a good deal under President Obama was overturned by President Trump. And to be fair, he wasn't the only Republican candidate by any means who said that that's what they would do. The assumption I think many made was that in power, perhaps, candidates do things differently. But if what President-elect Biden is offering them is four years of guarantee, then that I think is a challenge too, because... From the perspective of building your economy, four years is not a great length of time. If you're a business thinking about investing, four years is not a great length of time either. And for the P5 plus one team, the certainty that the length of the agreement is going to last and is going to be real is also extremely important. So while there's a lot of talk, and understandably, around getting back in I think getting back in has many other elements to it. And part of that is going to be talking to Congress and talking to, you know, political leaders within the US to get their sense of what is needed from their perspective to make this agreement really be something that America signs up to with conviction for a significant period of time.
1: I'd like to take a step back from your specific engagements and ask for some of your broader reflections, Cathy, and and to start with about the EU's mediation role. What do you think the EU should do if it wants to fulfil its mediation ambitions, particularly in its neighbourhood?
0: It's always, or rather I'm always aware that I say this sitting in a country that has left the European Union. So I would hope that people listening to this would understand that I'm not saying this as an outsider, but I'm saying this having been inside the EU and understanding well the challenges of pulling together the different perspectives of so many different countries across a huge area of land with lots of different politics at play. The knowledge that with now 27 countries, as I used to say, there's always an election happening somewhere, a change of ministers, a change of perspective, a change of national direction within a context of a broader EU. And so you have to begin with trying to develop, back to my developing the P5 plus 1, E3 plus 3, that you're trying to develop a team, um, a team of ministers who feel that they are working together, that they are part of a group, not just nations, but of individuals at any given moment, working on problems together. So, you know, the first thing is the building of the team. And that translates into what Europe offers, which is soft power. It's a magnet for countries like those in the Western Balkans who see their future inextricably linked to the future of the European Union with good reason. And they look to the EU to provide them the opportunities economically and politically to have the kind of future that they really want. So the EU has that capacity to use that magnet to be able to get things to change. And in the context of broader political work in mediation or negotiation, I would often say, you know, Europe is an example of a part of the world that has been through conflict that understands the horror and consequence of bitter divisiveness, of terrible, terrible war. And we don't do that now. Actually, what we do is resolve problems through dialogue across a table and discussion. It's not easy. It's never going to be easy. There are lots of different views debates and conflicts and challenges are all out in the public domain but there they are they are resolving them in a different way and so what Europe offers is we know how to do this we know how to do this now it took us a long time but we know how to do this.
1: You mentioned that attraction that the EU still holds for countries that are are nearby on its borders Um, you know one difficulty which I guess those in many European capitals are wrestling with is is how to deal with a resurgent Russia. You know, you mentioned Ukraine earlier and and your engagement there. What lessons do you draw from your experiences dealing with your Russian counterparts and uh, that might inform policy today?
0: I think where I would start with Russia is looking for ways in which there is a possibility of trying to do something, at least in a common space of an area of policy on which you agree. The great thing about the Iran negotiations was that the Russians wanted an agreement and wanted to be part of the team that got to that agreement and supported and stuck with it, even if at times I'm sure they had different views. I know they had different views as indeed all countries at various points had different views. Nonetheless, they were part of that. And I was always sad that the P5 plus one as a a way of working, as a grouping, was not used again, because I always felt that it had something unique in in its perspective and it knew how to work together.
1: Many of the negotiation processes you've been involved in have had senior women negotiators uh, at their helm, You know, this year marks the 20th anniversary of the UN Security Council Resolution 1325 on women, peace and security. How much progress have you seen during your career on on the inclusion of women in peacemaking?
0: It's quite interesting because in some of the discussions I've been in, there's a huge absence of women, not just in the mediators, but actually the issues that affect them. Um, I remember in the Geneva discussions on conflict in Syria, that the women's meeting was the night before the main meeting which said everything you need to know about how women's issues somehow don't get mainstreamed uh, in the way that they should be. For women mediators and negotiators you do see women actively engaged. If you think about the Iran negotiations, Wendy Sherman led the American team brilliantly, Helga Schmidt was working closely with me brilliantly, And I was there, it was not unusual to have three women on our side, if you like, leading the conversations. But I've always felt that the best teams are those where you have men and women. It's not about women being better at this or or whatever. You get a lot of talk about, is there something that men or women are better at? To me, the best teams are always teams that include the best of men and women working together.
1: Cathy, you and I crossed paths briefly in Myanmar, uh, where on behalf of the EU, you encouraged reform and and the democratization process, which for many in the West has been overshadowed by the plight of the Rohingya. I mean, in global terms, looking beyond Myanmar, to what extent do you have to temper optimism about the impact of mediation and diplomacy with the reality that it often doesn't succeed very quickly?
0: I'm always... Always optimistic about mediation negotiation, because in the end that's what you have to do. You know, at the end of conflicts, you have to negotiate the way forward. My preference is that it happens before we get to the point of conflict, before we're negotiating the end of a, of a war or a conflict, before people have lost their lives or their livelihoods or both, before we've seen chaos and despair. But it's what we need and we need more of it. And it does take time and it's often quiet and it's often happening in spaces that are secure and safe and it can take time. And in a world that is kind of rushing to the next news item and and people wanting to feel progress is quicker, that can be frustrating. And I think one of the things we grapple with is how do you allow for the fact that you need to be able to show that things are going on while not being able to show the results of what you're doing until you've finished. It's a difficult challenge. But in the end, it's what we should do. And I think although you can look at the world and say, well, look at it, you know, there's actually an awful lot of brilliant people busy mediating, negotiating, doing things, many of whose names we will never know but my goodness, what a great job they
1: do. Well, on that optimistic note, Kathy, I think we'll have to end. Thank you so much for sharing your reflections with us.
0: Thank you, Adam.
1: That was Kathy Ashton in the Mediator Studio, an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. If you've enjoyed your time in the Mediator Studio, please spread the word and recommend us to your friends and colleagues. We love receiving reviews, positive or otherwise. You can reach me on Twitter at AdamTalksPeace. We'll be taking a little break over the holidays, but we'll be back in January to give you your mediation fix. Do subscribe if you want to catch new episodes as they're released. That's all from me,
0: Adam Cooper. Thank you for listening.